in an age of moral relativism and sexual chaos, guess what's selling on Amazon right now? Truth. And not just any kind of truth either. Truth that's rooted in biblical principles that are found in the Bible. Imagine that. As if the Bible still has any wisdom for us today. I love reading books. And so it's fascinating to me that right now, the number one national and international best-selling book for Amazon is by a clinical psychologist and cultural critic named Jordan Peterson. And his book right now is titled 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote for Chaos. And in his book, Peterson talks about freedom, discipline, and responsibility in a world that doesn't want to hear anything about responsibility and rules. And yet this right now is the number one best-selling book where he makes unashamed references to biblical principles. In fact, this guy had a lecture series last year that you had to pay, up, started like $55, pay to attend this lecture series. It was a sold out lecture series all year long. And the lecture series was titled, The Psychological Significance of the Biblical Stories. And in that series, Peterson analyzes narratives from the book of Genesis. Narratives from the book of Genesis and uses them as patterns for human behavior. And then he says this, quote, these patterns for human behavior you find in Genesis are vital for personal, social, and cultural stability. He's not the only one. Dennis Prager is another best-selling author and cultural critic today who says he was shocked when his 500-page book that came out in April became the number two best-selling book on Amazon, even though it is titled The Rational Bible, Exodus. And while Peterson is a psychologist and a social scientist, Dennis Prager is a professor, a PhD professor, and a Jew who has spent the last 25 years teaching the first five books that they call the Torah verse by verse. For 25 years, he's taught the first five books of the Bible verse by verse at the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. And his best-selling book is simply a compilation of those lectures. So what in the world is going on today? Well, I think Dennis Prager states it well. World Magazine interviewed him this month. And Dennis Prager in an interview with them, says this. He says, I am not that interested in day-to-day -day news. And I believe that young people today are also not interested in the day-to-day -day news. He said, instead, I think what actually interests young people today are the big issues of life. Like what is good? What is bad? What is true? What is false? And what is is the meaning of life. And then he concludes his interview in World Magazine by saying this, and I quote, my task is to communicate very old ideas in a fresh way. And young people respond with hunger because they don't hear this anywhere else. They don't get wisdom and they don't know that they even want wisdom, but everybody wants wisdom. Oh, that's right. Everybody wants wisdom. It doesn't matter how much the world harps on about there isn't really truth and there's not right and wrong and there's not. The human heart hungers for what is true, what is good, what is, why is there evil, what's the purpose in life? And so that's why we're digging into the book of Proverbs this summer, to get wisdom. And we've looked there for all kinds of issues, but nowhere is it more needed than regarding our sexuality. So last week, we started digging into three chapters, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, to try to find out what does God say about our sexuality and how it's a good gift, it's good, but how we can use it and experience it without destroying ourselves and other people around us. So turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter six. 
Proverbs chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he's found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding passing the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him. And kissed him. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I've paid my vows, so I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I've spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come. Let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. All at once, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know that it would cost him his life. Now therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. The word of the Lord. Here's what I want to do in the time that's left. I want to give you a strategy that I hope can keep you So I'm working on these very things and more. I couldn't put it all into one sermon. But I'm gonna share with you some of the very things I'm working on. I've gotta do these things I'm gonna share with you. But I wanna give you a strategy that I hope can keep you from getting sucked in, chewed up, 
and spit out by all the sexual chaos in our world today. Number one, number one, you better have made up your mind already, already that you're committed to whatever God says about your sexuality. You have to have already made up your mind, my friends. You see, the groundwork that needs to be done in your mind has to be in place ahead of time. Or you will go down in flames out there. If you're making decisions about what you think in the moment, in the sexual temptation moment, you'll go down. You have to have made up your mind ahead of time that you're committed to whatever God's word says about your sexuality, regardless of what you think and feel and what the world is saying and experts show and new research has developed and blah, 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 blah. You gotta decide. Am I committed to doing whatever God, my creator, says about my sexuality. Look at Proverbs 7, 6 and 7 again. For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and I saw among the simple. Look at me. Let me talk to you a minute about that word because it's not a compliment. Oh, he's not a complex person. He's simple. That's wonderful. I'm looking for the simple life. That word simple in the Hebrew is the word petit. And it means to be open or un committed. In other words, this is the man or woman, regardless of age. Remember I said, this is a father talking to his son, but this is to all of us. You never reach an age that you can no longer be stupid. (laughs) Stupid is for a lifetime. Okay? So this is to all of us. This is the man or woman who is still keeping all of their options open. You have not yet made a commitment. This is what God's word says Bam, that settles it for me. The petite, the simple, they're still open, uncommitted, haven't made up their mind yet. Here's what I think is interesting. This is the person that the world commends. They are held up as a poster child. Here's how they word it. They're still just exploring. They're exploring their own sexuality. You decide whether you think you're a male or a female. You decide when and how you want to use sex and with who and how often. You make those decisions. Explore. Don't let anyone tell you. Don't let the church tell you. Don't let someone else in authority tell you. You explore your own sexuality and check out all the options and you make a decision for yourself and the world applauds this. News alert. The Bible talks about this person very, very differently. See, that word petit is actually one of the Hebrew words that's all clustered together in a family of words that all mean foo. I left the L off, foo. It's just a foo. It's just one version of a fool. It's one version of a fool. You still have not committed to what God says. You're open. You're keeping your options open. That will end with destruction. Let me ask you, have you, regardless of how old you are, have you made up your mind yet that you're gonna be committed to all that God says about your sexuality for whatever season of life you're in and whatever state of singleness or marriage you're in, you're committed to what God says regardless of what the world harps on about, or have you just left the door open a little? That in the right moment, in the right circumstances, I don't wanna just slam the door altogether. There might be someone, there might be some instance in where I'd be willing to do that. You've kept your options open. Listen to me. The door opened just a little gives place to doubt. And it only takes a little bit of doubt to go down in flames. Because I hope you realize that's exactly how the first man and woman went down in flames. Remember Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three? Satan's opening salvo of temptation to Adam and Eve was to simply plant a seed, say it, of what? Doubt. 
a seed of doubt. And it sounded like this. Did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree of the garden? Now, I want you to notice what just happened in that one question. Two things just happened. Did God really say? The enemy planted a seed of doubt about what God said. But there's a second thing that happened. I don't know if you heard it. He also introduced exaggeration into the equation to plant a seed of doubt about how good God is to us. Did you hear it? Did God really say, doubt about God's word, that you cannot eat from any tree of the garden? Did God say they couldn't eat from any tree? No, one. You got the whole garden to enjoy, just one. That's the same approach that our enemy takes. That's what he did then. That's what he's doing today. Just, oh my goodness, I can't believe God is talking to you this way. Introduce doubt and a question about how good he is. Satan spins it out into, oh, did God say you can't eat from any of these trees? What kind of God would do this to you? You have got to get out from underneath this kind of tyrannical rule and harsh God, and you need to start making decisions for yourself because he's not good. He's holding out on you. Real joy, real pleasure, real freedom, real fulfillment is just on the other side of his restrictions. That's how he talked then. That's how he still talks to us today. Let me show you what this sounds like in our sexual struggles today. Did God really, I'm gonna look right over here where I got my singles, Dixie High School and et cetera, which I love, by the way. So this is for all of us, but did God really say not to sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend? Even if we're gonna get married, we've talked about it. This is not just random sex in the backseat of the car. We're, we're gonna get married and we love each other. Let me help you. He's talking about that. That. Do not have sex before you're married. Not just random sex. Doesn't matter whether you say you love each other, doesn't matter you say we are gonna get married. Let me give you another one. That's what it sounds like. Did God really mean that homosexuality is wrong? In every instance, even if we truly love each other, this is not random club sex, just going across the clubs and city and just having homosexual encounters. This is, we love each other. In fact, we love each other enough to make a commitment in marriage. We're committed in marriage. Yes, it's two men and two or two women, but... Surely God didn't mean that. He was talking about just, just the perversion of having homosexual. Let me help you. That. That. Did God really mean? Did God really mean not to commit adultery, which is having sex with someone who you're not married to, even though you're married? Did he really mean not to commit adultery if the spark is gone from our marriage? And here's what I hear all the time. Ad nauseum. <gasps> and we never should have gotten married in the first place. I've never loved her. Shut up. This is not India. No one made you marry her. No one put a gun to your head. Just shut up. Everybody wants to convince me how they never really loved them. Let me help you out. You're not that special case. Oh, I, I, what if you knew this, Pastor Brad? Yes, everybody who commits adultery says that. Welcome to the club, liar. Because people who commit adultery also lie and deceive and they want what they want and they convince themselves we never should have got married, we never loved each other. God's talking about that, that, yeah, that. Don't commit adultery. Did God really mean not to even look at videos and pictures of naked people and people having sex or connecting in a chat room and talking sexual back and forth with each other? It doesn't even involve my body. There's no connection. They're in another city or across the city or somewhere else. Surely in the privacy of my bedroom, this is not what he was talking about and it's not hurting anyone. Let me help you. That, that, 
Because A, I wish more people took a serious thought to, those women and those men in those videos are real people created in the image of God who are being abused. They don't have a good life. Never mind all the nonsense. There's good health care and there's drug addiction and there's poor health care and they die early deaths. Huge statistics show all this. These are people being abused for your pleasure and you are objectifying human beings on the altar of your own sexual pleasure it's wrong and you are also causing yourself to find it very hard to connect with a real person in real time to be intimate and to show care and love that is what God was talking about don't do that whether it's porn and self-pleasure, or sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, or committing adultery, or just plunging headlong down a path of homosexuality. You are a statistic just waiting to happen. If you're still a petite, simple-minded, keeping your options open, and not willing to completely slam the door yet, and say, I don't care what I feel, I don't care what I hear sung in songs, I don't care what I see in the latest movie, I don't care what latest research shows, I don't care what Dr. So-and-so says, I'm committed to what God says. Augustine, Augustine, when he was wrestling with the, the idol of sexual sin in his own life, prayed this prayer. Lord, deliver me from lust, but not yet. Some of you, that's your prayer. You're saying you want God's help. You're saying you don't like this struggle. And yet at the same time, you have not yet been willing to completely slam the door. And that is why you struggle so much. And that is why your life is filled with so much angst that's swirling all around you. You've not yet made a commitment. Close the door. And I'm committed to what God says. I would say to some of you here today, the same thing that Elijah said to the people of God in 1 Kings chapter 18. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And follow him in everything, including your sexuality, regardless of how wide the world goes from what God's word is saying now. Follow him. But if Baal is God, Baal is the world system, the world view, the world's so-called wisdom. If Baal is God, follow him. Look at me. You cannot keep one foot in two different ideological worlds. Don't hear me saying don't go out in the world. Go there, work. I'm talking about in your mind, you're still sort of wondering if the world is right and sort of hearing what God's word says. You cannot keep one foot in two different ideological worlds or you will go down in flames. A divided mind will eventually produce a devastated life. Mark my words. Make up your Mind. Number two, do everything you can to stay acutely aware of God. Don't let God get fuzzy in the midst of your sexual struggles. Oh, this is so critical, and I wish more Christians could get a hold of this. It's not that you need to read more articles about how bad it is out there, how bad it is out there, how bad. Got it. It's bad. I wish more Christians had an awareness of God's presence in the midst of their sexual struggles. Look at Proverbs 5.21 again. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he, God, ponders all his paths. The NIV says, for a man's ways are in full view of the Lord. And God examines all his paths. You remember the story of Joseph? I'm not talking about the earthly father of Jesus in Matthew. I'm talking about Joseph in Genesis. Sold into slavery by his brothers, drug off to Egypt. 
Remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 39. Here he is. He's probably 17, 18, 19, 20. Ripped out of his homeland, away from all he knows. The Bible tells us he's handsome. And he is top dog in the palace of Potiphar. Potiphar's his boss. And the man's wife keeps trying to get him to go to bed with her. I don't mean once. The Bible says day after day, she said, he's got to go to work there. He works in the palace. And day after day, she's saying, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. This young man, apart from a synagogue or all he knew and family, resisted her advances. And part of what helped him do this is he had what I'm pressing with you right now. He never lost an acute awareness of God. You say, Brad, how do you know that? I know it from how he answered her. It's in his answer. Listen to what he says in Genesis 39, eight and nine, looking right at her. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He's committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against? Say it. Now, I don't know about you. Every time I read that verse, the ending surprises me. Doesn't it seem like it should end, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Because for two verses, he's built a case for Oh my goodness, this man's been so good to me. He's given me all authority. He's given me so much. He's been so good to me. How then could I do this wickedness and sin against Potiphar? But he doesn't, and he doesn't for a very good reason. Joseph understood anything good in my life ultimately comes through the hand of God. And God is better, and God is bigger, and God ultimately gave me my gift of sexuality, this good gift. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against, say it, God? God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the problem well. When he says this, in our members, and I quote, in our members there's a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh all at once. A secret smoldering fire is kindled, the flesh burns and is in flames. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature at this moment God is quite unreal to us he loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real oh listen to what he says next Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God but forgetfulness of God so that the powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. Do you understand what he's saying? You do not have to become a card-carrying atheist to step into horrible sexual sin. All you have to do is forget God and lose an awareness of God in the midst of your sexual temptations. And when you lose an awareness of God, you also lose the powers of clear discrimination and of decision and will find yourself doing and having done something you never thought you would do. Do everything you can to stay acutely aware of God. You say, Brad, how do you do that? Well, this is a sermon unto itself, so I can't take 20 minutes to do it, but let me just thump it. How do you stay acutely aware of God? Listen to me. You gotta read your Bible every day. Just like I've gotta eat and have enough vegetables and fruits and proteins and grains and water and 
You got to read God's word every day. Here's where I get reoriented. Oh, first of all, oh, there's a God. The world doesn't tell me that. Oh, he's good. Oh, he knows me intimately. Oh, he's given me his spirit. Oh, oh, oh. I get reoriented through his word that changes. I head off into my day with a fresh awareness that there's a God by reading his word. (gasps) By prayer. By simply setting aside five, ten minutes. More would be great, but five or ten at least. Where you quiet your heart and you say, oh God, fill me with your spirit today. Help me today. I've got some meetings. I've got some situations. I want to live for you today. I want to say no to temptation. I want to finish well. I want to be used for you, girl. You pray. You read the Bible. You pray. And then at some point in the week, you don't just have soccer and gymnastics and, and clean out the garage and fix this and do that. You've got a night where you join with some other believers, not like this, but at close range, where you pray together. And you're reminded, oh, I'm not the only one that struggles. Oh, I'm not the only one trying to live for Jesus. And you bear one of those burdens and you pray for each other and you help each other. Our small groups are not one more sermon. It's not an in-depth lecture in someone's living room. We don't think that's what you need along with this Sunday morning sermon. We think you need other believers at close range to hold on to you and to help you. So many of the commands in the Bible are let us run. Let us, let us, let us. He never intended for you to try to live the Christian life alone. That's how you stay acutely aware of God. Number three, do everything you can to see more than just this present moment. That's what Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 are all about. Trying to help us see more, see more than just the present moment moment than the immediate raging sexual temptation. Look at Proverbs 5, 3, and 4 again. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Now you can substitute. This is not, these chapters are not just talking about, oh, I want, I want to make sure I never go to a prostitute. I hope you don't. But just put right in there any sexual sin, pornography, fornication, adultery, It all seems sweet. It all seems like honey. It all seems like oil. Next phrase, four words. But in the end. Say it with me. But in the end. Say it again. But in the end. And there will be an end. There will be an end sooner than you wish. But in the end. She's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Folks, the Bible doesn't say that sexual sin has no pleasure. The Bible just keeps reminding you the end, the end, and there will be an end, the end. Years ago, I read an article in New York Times. I love it when I see stuff in the world from people who are not even Christians that affirm everything the Bible teaches. So I've never forgotten this. It's so stuck with me. New York Times ran an article by a woman who had committed adultery 20 years ago. And she's now looking back and saying how filled with grief and regret she is. And they printed it. She says this, and I quote, Not long ago, the friend of a friend spent the night in a hotel room, which is sometimes what you do when you find out your spouse has been having a year-long affair. I know this for two reasons. Number one, I have had an affair. Number two, I have been the victim of one. You will hear yourself saying you cheated because your needs weren't being met. The spark was gone. You were bored in your marriage. Your lover understands you better. One or another version of this excuse will cross your lips like some dark, knee-jerk, hallmark card sentiment. And then she makes this very insightful comment. The great sex, by the way, is a given. When you have an affair, you already know that you'll have passionate sex. The urgency, newness, illicit nature of the affair practically guarantee that. What you don't know, or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about, is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret because of it. It will be difficult, if not possible, to be in any one place with contentment. 
When you're with your lover, you'll be working on your alibi and feeling loathsome. When you're with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you're at home, everything in your life will look just a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food in the refrigerator, your children, your dog, because you have detached yourself from your normal point of reference. You will be pulled between two poles, one of obligation and responsibility, the other of pleasure and escape. And the stress of those opposing forces will threaten to split you in two. Sooner or later, your illicit, once beloved object of affection will become tawdry and wearying. You will come to long for simple, honest pleasures like making dinner with your sons or going out to the movies and not having to look over your shoulder. And then she concludes by saying this, I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives are at the ages of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50 some years behind them and it is a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. And then she asked this question, if you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery. From where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel. And despite the sex and the excitement, there is no view from this room worth having. Oh, what room is she standing in now, folks? The end, looking back over her life. There's no view from this room. How are you gonna get that view in the moment of sexual temptation? Bible will give it to you. Look at Proverbs 5.11. That's why Proverbs 5.11 says what it does. At the end of your life, if you give in to sexual temptation, at the end of your life, you will groan. That word groan is a Hebrew word that means to roar out loud or to wail because of grief and regret as you look back over your life. She's groaning. She's wailing as she looks back up. Listen, sexual sin will leave you wailing in the end. Don't end your life roaring with regret because of the sexual decisions you made in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. Because you lost any awareness of God, lost a view of the end, and perhaps had never fully made up your mind. Is adultery wrong in every case? Let me give you a final part of this strategy. Number four, pay attention to the little stuff. And I could rattle off a dozen things, but I couldn't get them all in the sermon, so I'm gonna give you two. But listen to me, if you're here and you're saying, oh, I don't wanna commit adultery. Oh, I don't wanna commit fornication. Oh, I don't wanna head headlong down a path of homosexuality. Good, but I would tell you, if you haven't backed it up from that, and you aren't focused on some much smaller things that you're trying to be vigilant with, you could end up doing something you never thought you would do. Number one, something little to pay attention. Well, first let me read a quote from Ed Welch. Ed Welch says this, the actual descent into sin begins without much fanfare. When looking into the Grand Canyon, the first step down seems insignificant. Rather than a huge, noticeable leap of rebellion, sin is marked by small steps of spiritual casualness or indifference and apathy that don't attract notice. After all, everyone coasts now and then, we think. Let me help you here. Spiritual casualness, indifference, apathy, You see, I'm not running headlong into sin. I'm just coasting a bit. It's been a while since I've really gotten after reading my Bible and praying. And we're not plugged into a small group, but listen to me. Coasting is not good. 
I understand there might be seasons where you had a third child or a new job or something that ramped up. I've had to pull back from some of my spiritual disciplines, but that cannot last long. Coasting makes you at risk, risk, risk. So let me give you one small thing to pay attention. You should be alarmed by what's going on in your heart long before it shows up in your body. Look at Proverbs 6.25. Do not lust after her where? In your heart. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 15. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. See, folks, if you're saying, I'm not involved with anyone I shouldn't be involved with. But if you're allowing your imagination and your thoughts to just kind of run loose like children in Target that are untrained (laughs) through the clothes rack, you're in trouble. All your thoughts matter. Your heart matters. I just find myself thinking about that person at work. I just consider what if, what? Shut it down. Shut it down. Take every thought captive. Your heart should be guarded. Guarded. It won't be long. Wherever you have allowed your heart to shift, your body will follow. It's just a matter of time. That's why Paul Tripp says, Quote, the wars of sex and money are never just a battle with the temptations of the surrounding culture. They're never just about behavior or what we do with our bodies. Christ is saying that our behavior is more directed by what's inside of us than the people and situations outside of us. Jesus is saying that sexual struggles are inescapably struggles of the heart. Physical adultery or fornication or homosexuality or porn and self-pleasure is simply the body going where the heart had long ago gone. So let me ask you, if you are right now in bed with people you shouldn't be in bed with, please repent. But I've got a question that probably touches more of us. Where's your heart right now? Where's your heart? right now wherever that is it won't be long and your body will be there because your sexual decisions will align themselves with wherever your heart has shifted and landed it's only a matter of time before you ever surf your way through a screen full of porn or cheat on your spouse or jump into bed with your girlfriend you had to cheat on god first Because sexual sin is always a worship problem. It is idolatry or worship gone awry, misplaced. Because your heart has moved on from God to something else that you think will satisfy you more. That's why I love John Piper's definition of sin. Sin is what we do when we are not, anybody know the next word? Satisfied in God. Never mind your spouse. Never mind where you are sexually and you're so frustrated. Sexual sin is what you do when you're not satisfied in God. Tripp goes on to say, in sex you're always worshiping something. What this means is that in sex you and I are always surrendering our hearts to something. The things we say, do, seek in sex are all ruled by the desire for something. In this most intimate of human activities, you are always revealing who God designed you to be, a worshiper. You don't put down your worship nature when you're having sex. You and I have worshiped our way through every moment of any kind of sexual activity to which we've ever given ourselves. Where's your heart? That's why we already had an entire sermon in this series from Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flows the issues of life, including where you end up sexually. Let me give you a second little thing to pay attention to. You should be suspicious of any desire you have to isolate yourself from the people of God, to pull away from the people of God. Proverbs 18.1 says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against wise judgment. What's going on? If you're that man or woman, never mind personality. Well, I'm just a quiet person. I'm just that. I'm just that. I don't like to connect. Get over it. 
It's the same thing I say when people, people say, well, I'm not a reader. He gave us a Bible. Sorry. He's a really smart God. If you have to listen to it on audio, do so. Here's something similar. He created you in his image, which means you are relational to some degree. And he designed the Christian life to be lived in connection with other believers. Get over. When you isolate yourself, it's almost always that you want what you want. And I can probably get what I want easier without people in my life being intrusive or intentional or interfering. And you rage against wise judgment. Trying to live the Christian life on your own is not wise, he says. See, get this, sin thrives in isolation. It grows like mold in your bathroom or shower in the dark. That's why when God saved you, he didn't just call you to his son, he called you to the church, his people. Those are one and the same. When you read the Bible, it was just a given that you'd get saved, love Jesus, and plug into a local church. It doesn't matter. It breaks my heart. It's a blessing and a curse that, oh, yeah, all the sermons are online now. I can just jog and listen to your last sermon, Brad. So why even go to church? Why go to a small group? Why? The Bible tells us the Christian life was designed to be lived in community in connection with other believers at close range. Even the New Testament teaches the same thing about our fight against sin. When in Hebrews 3, the writer says, oh my goodness, exhort one another daily, lest your heart become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he's talking to believers. Now that word exhort means to come alongside someone close and put truth into their mind. That happens best in what we call small groups here at our church. You've got to be connected with other believers at close range. But here's how I see Satan deceiving some of you in your sexual struggles, so I wanna address it. And it causes you more than most to, to be cut off and ashamed and isolated. So I wanna address it loud and clear. It doesn't matter what, ooh, wow. I always wondered if that would happen. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Oh, my heart's going now. I'm happy to be alive. It doesn't matter what your sexual struggle is. You belong here. You're not in a special category. You may be here and it is same-sex attraction and a longing for intimacy with the same gender. You are not, you are not a worse sinner than anyone else. You are not in a special category that has no hope. You're in the right place right here with all the other broken sinners. We're all broken and we're all broken sexually. It's just a question of in what way? Heterosexual sinful tendencies of fornication, adultery, you name it, are no less than homosexual tendencies. There is not categories of twistedness. We're all broken So don't let Satan lie to you and you stay quiet and you never share and you never, you don't know what would happen if you were to say what your struggle is. You might be judged. This is a place that believes we're all sinners and we're all sexually broken and we all need Jesus and his grace and we all look to the power of the gospel and you've come to the right place. You're in the right place. So what is that hope for all of us? Well, turn with me as we close to Romans 13. Let me show you the hope. That's the same hope for all of us. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this knowing the time that now it's high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry. That's a word that means orgies and drunkenness, not in lewdness. That means sexual license. You just do whatever. And lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now I want you to notice, Paul points the believers in Rome back to Jesus as the means of fighting this fight for sexual purity. Not thoughts about Jesus, not the doctrine of Jesus, but an intimate, vital, living, 
relationship. That's what put on the Lord Jesus means. That's a summary phrase that just summarizes how his life is becoming one with your life. That's what the Christian life's about. That you know him, you're in relationship with him, you're intimate with him, you feel unashamed in his presence. To simply do this, and I've heard of Christians doing silly things like this. I'm, I'm, I'm about to leave for work. I, I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what that means. If you didn't read your Bible and you didn't pray and you don't love him, you didn't just obey that verse. That is a phrase that means I am cultivating a relationship with him and he's real to me. There's an intimacy growing. There's less of me and more of him. I'm being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. I'm starting to think like he thinks. And, but notice what else he says. The last half of verse 14. And make no provision for the so you're cultivating a vital, intimate relationship with Jesus, and then, then you're not making it easy to sin. Making provision for the flesh just means you haven't shut down some of the places you get in trouble most. Stop making it so easy. If it's the internet, get a filter. If you're so smart, you know how to work your way around every filter, get rid of your computer. How bad do you want help? I had someone look at me and say, oh, but I shop on Amazon. Shut up. Like you want stuff arriving at your house in two days or do you want to be sexually pure? How bad do you want to win this battle? There's places that you go where you get in trouble. There's clubs you used to hang out but you still go right by there. There's people you used to run around with and you're still in that world. Where is it where you get in trouble? Stop making it so easy. Make no provision for the flesh. And here's what I think is interesting. The Greek verb there is a verb that means stop doing something you're already doing. So he didn't mean, oh, some of you, I hope this never happens to you that you make provision for the flesh. He's saying you're doing this. Stop. Cultivate a relationship with Jesus and cut off those places that have made it easier for me to fall. Oh, God, thank you for your word. More than your word, thank you for your son, Jesus who gave himself for us, who gave his life in payment for sexual sin and rose again that we might have power over sexual sin to say no. And oh God, thank you for accepting us in the beloved, for the intimacy that we could have with him. Give us renewed passion to pursue holiness sexually in a chaos world. We pray in Jesus' name.